This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Essays of Francis Bacon. Essay 16 of Atheism. I had rather believe all the fables in the legend, and the Talmud, and the Alcoran, than that this universal frame is without a mind. And therefore God never wrought miracle to convince atheism, because his ordinary works convince it. It is true that a little philosophy inclineth man's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth men's minds about to religion. For while the mind of man looketh upon second causes scattered, it may sometimes rest in them, and go no further. But when it beholdeth the chain of them confederate and linked together, it must needs fly to providence and deity. Nay, even that school which is most accused of atheism doth most demonstrate religion, that is, the school of Lysippus and Democritus and Epicurus. For it is a thousand times more credible that four mutable elements and one immutable fifth essence, duly and eternally placed, need no God, than that an army of infinite small portions, or seeds unplaced, should have produced this order and beauty without a divine marshal. The scripture saith, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. It is not said, The fool hath thought in his heart. So as he rather saith it by rote to himself, as that he would have then that he can thoroughly believe it, or be persuaded of it. For none deny there is a God, but those for whom it maketh that there were no God. It appeareth in nothing more, that atheism is rather in the lip than in the heart of man, than by this that atheists will ever be talking of that their opinion as if they fainted in it within themselves and would be glad to be strengthened by the consent of others nay more you shall have atheists strive to get disciples as it fareth with other sects and which is most of all you shall have of them that will suffer for atheism and not recant whereas if they did truly think that there were no such thing as god why should they trouble themselves? Epicurus is charged that he did but dissemble for his credit's sake when he affirmed there were blessed natures but such as enjoyed themselves without having respect to the government of the world, wherein they say he did temporize, though in secret he thought there was no God. But certainly he is traduced, for his words are noble and divine non dios vulgi negari profanum said vulgi opiniones dis applicari profanum plato could have said no more and although he had the confidence to deny the administration he had not the power to deny the nature the indians of the west have names for their particular gods though they have no name for god as if the heathens should have had the names Jupiter, Apollo, Mars, etc., but not the word Deus, which shows that even those barbarous people have the notion 
though they have not the latitude and extent of it. So that against atheists, the very savages take part with the very subtlest philosophers. The contemplative atheist is rare. A Diagoras, a Bion, a Lucian, perhaps, and some others. And yet they seem to be more than they are, for that all that impugn a received religion or superstition are by the adverse part branded with the name of atheists. But the great atheists, indeed, are hypocrites, which are ever handling holy things, but without feeling, so as they must needs be cauterized in the end. The causes of atheism are divisions in religion, if they be many, for any one main division addeth zeal to both sides, but many divisions introduce atheism. Another is scandal of priests. When it is come to that which St. Bernard saith, non est jam diceri ut populus sic sacerdos, quia nec sic populus ut sacerdos. A third is custom of profane scoffing in holy matters, which doth by little and little deface the reverence of religion. And lastly, learned times specially with peace and prosperity, for troubles and adversities do more bow men's minds to religion. They that deny a god destroy man's nobility, for certainly man is of kin to the beasts by his body and if he be not of kin to God by his spirit, he is a base and ennoble creature. It destroys likewise magnanimity, and the raising of the human nature. For take an example of a dog, and mark what a generosity and courage he will put on when he finds himself maintained by a man, who to him is instead of a god, or melior natura, which courage is manifestly such as that creature without that confidence of a better nature than his own could never attain so man when he resteth and assureth himself upon divine protection and favor gathered a force and faith which human nature in itself could not obtain therefore as atheism is in all respects hateful so in this that it depriveth human nature of the means to exalt itself above human frailty. As it is in particular persons, so it is in nations. Never was there such a state for magnanimity as Rome. Of this state hear what Cicero saith, Quam volumus licet, patres conscripti nos amimus, tamen nec numero, Hispanos, nec roboro, gallos, nec calidate, poenas, nec artibus grecos, nec denic hoc ipso, hujus gentis et terra domestico, nativoc sensu italis ipsos et latinos. Sed pietate ac religione atque hac una sapientia quod deorum immortalium numine omnia regi gubernarice perspeximus omnes gentes nationesque superavimus. Essay 17. Of Superstition. It were better to have no opinion of God at all than such an opinion as is unworthy of him. For the one is unbelief, the other is contumely. 
and certainly superstition is the reproach of the deity. Plutarch saith well to that purpose, Surely, saith he, I had rather a great deal men should say there was no such man at all as Plutarch, than that they should say that there was one Plutarch that would eat his children as soon as they were born, as the poets speak of Saturn. And as the contumely is greater towards God, so the danger is greater towards men. Atheism leaves a man to sense, to philosophy, to natural piety, to laws, to reputation, all which may be guides to an outward moral virtue, though religion were not, but superstition dismounts all these, and erecteth an absolute monarchy in the minds of men. Therefore theism did never perturb states, for it makes men wary of themselves, as looking no further. And we see the times inclined to atheism, as the time of Augustus Caesar, were civil times. But superstition hath been the confusion of many states, and bringeth in a new primum mobile that ravisheth all the spheres of government. The master of superstition is the people, and in all superstition wise men follow fools, and arguments are fitted to practice in a reversed order. It was gravely said by some of the prelates in the Council of Trent, where the doctrine of the schoolmen bear great sway, that the schoolmen were like astronomers, which did feign eccentrics and epicycles, and such engines of orbs to save the phenomena, though they knew there were no such things. And in like manner that the schoolmen had framed a number of subtle and intricate axioms and theorems to save the practice of the church. The causes of superstition are pleasing in sensual rites and ceremonies, excess of outward and pharisaical holiness, over great reverence of traditions which cannot but load the church, the stratagems of prelates for their own ambition and lucre, the favoring too much of good intentions, which openeth the gate to conceits and novelties, the taking an aim at divine matters by human, which cannot but breed mixture of imaginations, and lastly, barbarous times, especially joined with calamities and disasters. Superstition without a veil is a deformed thing, for as it addeth deformity to an ape to be so like a man, so the similitude of superstition to religion makes it the more deformed. And as wholesome meat corrupteth to little worms, so good forms and orders corrupt into a number of petty observances. There is a superstition in avoiding superstition, when men think to do best if they go furthest from the superstition, formerly received. Therefore care would be had that, as it fareth in ill purgings, the good be not taken away with the bad, which commonly is done when the people is the reformer. Essay 18 of Travel Travel in the younger sort is a part of education, in the elder a part of experience. He that traveleth into a country before he hath some entrance into the language goeth to school, and not to travel. That young men travel under some tutor or grave servant, I allow well, so that he be such a one that hath the language, and hath been in the country before, whereby he may be able to tell them what things are worthy to be seen in the country where they go, what acquaintances they are to seek, 
what exercises or discipline the place yieldeth. For else young men shall go hooded and look abroad little. It is a strange thing that in sea voyages, where there is nothing to be seen but sky and sea, men should make diaries. But in land travel, wherein so much is to be observed, for the most part they omit it as if chance were fitter to be registered than observation. Let diaries, therefore, be brought in use. The things to be seen and observed are the courts of princes, especially when they give audience to ambassadors, the courts of justice, while they sit and hear causes, and so of consistories ecclesiastic, the churches and monasteries, with the monuments which are therein extant, the walls and fortifications of cities and towns, and so the havens and harbors, antiquities and ruins, libraries, colleges, disputations and lectures where any are, shipping and navies, houses and gardens of state and pleasure near great cities, armories, arsenals, magazines, exchanges, burses, warehouses, exercises of horsemanship, fencing, training of soldiers, and the like, comedies, such whereunto the better sort of persons do resort, treasuries of jewels and robes, cabinets and rarities, and, to conclude, whatsoever is memorable in the places where they go. After all which, the tutors or servants ought to make diligent inquiry. As for triumphs, masks, feasts, weddings, funerals, capital executions, and such shows, men need not to be put in mind of them. Yet are they not to be neglected. If you will have a young man to put his travel into a little room, and in short time to gather much, this you must do. First, as was said, he must have some entrance into the language before he goeth. Then he must have such a servant or tutor as knoweth the country, as was likewise said. Let him carry with him also some card or book describing the country where he travelleth, which will be a good key to his inquiry. Let him keep also a diary. Let him not stay long in one city or town, more or less as the place deserveth, but not long. Nay, when he stayeth in one city or town, let him change his lodging from one end and part of the town to another, which is a great adamant of acquaintance. Let him sequester himself from the company of his countrymen, and diet in such places where there is good company of the nation where he travelleth. Let him, upon his removes from one place to another, procure recommendation to some person of quality residing in the place whither he removeth, that he may use his favor in those things he desireth to see or know. Thus he may abridge his travel with much profit. As for the acquaintance, which is to be sought in travel, that which is most of all profitable is acquaintance with the secretaries and employed men of ambassadors. For so in traveling in one country he shall suck the experience of many. Let him also see and visit eminent persons in all kinds, which are of great name abroad, that he may be able to tell how the life agreeth with fame for quarrels, they are with care and discretion to be avoided. They are commonly for mistresses, healths, place, and words. And let a man beware how he keepeth company with choleric and quarrelsome persons, for they will engage him into their own quarrels. When a traveller returneth home, 
let him not leave the countries where he hath travelled altogether behind him, but maintain a correspondence by letters with those of his acquaintance, which are of most worth. And let his travel appear rather in his discourse than his apparel or gesture, and in his discourse let him be rather advised in his answers than forward to tell stories, and let it appear that he doth not change his country manners for those of foreign parts, but only prick in some flowers of that he hath learned abroad into the customs of his own country. Essay 19 of Empire It is a miserable state of mind to have few things to desire and many things to fear, and yet that commonly is the case of kings, who, being at the highest, want matter of desire which makes their minds more languishing and have many representations of perils and shadows which makes their minds the less clear and this is one reason also of that effect which the scripture speaketh of that the king's heart is inscrutable for multitude of jealousies and lack of some predominant desire that should marshal and put in order all the rest maketh any man's heart hard to find or sound Hence it comes likewise that princes many times make themselves desires and set their hearts upon toys, sometimes upon a building, sometimes upon erecting of an order, sometimes upon the advancing of a person, sometimes upon obtaining excellency in some art or feat of the hand, as Nero for playing on the harp, Domitian for certainty of the hand with the arrow, Commodus for playing at fence, Caracalla for driving chariots, and the like. This seemeth incredible unto those that know not the principle, that the mind of man is more cheered and refreshed by profiting in small things, than by standing at a stay in great. We see also that kings have been fortunate conquerors in their first years, it being not possible for them to go forward infinitely, but that they must have some check or rest in their fortunes, turn in their latter years to be superstitious and melancholy, as did Alexander the Great, Diocletian, and in our memory Charles V, and others. For he that is used to go forward and findeth a stop, falleth out of his own favor, and is not the thing he was. To speak now of the true temper of empire, it is a thing rare and hard to keep, for both temper and distemper consist of contraries but it is one thing to mingle contraries, another to interchange them. The answer of Apollonius to Vespasian is full of excellent instruction. Vespasian asked him, What was Nero's overthrow? He answered, Nero could touch and tune the harp well, but in government sometimes he used to wind the pins too high, sometimes to let them down too low. And certain it is that nothing destroyeth authority so much as the unequal and untimely interchange of power pressed too far and relaxed too much. This is true, that the wisdom of all these latter times in princes' affairs is rather fine deliveries and shiftings of dangers and mischiefs when they are near than solid and grounded courses to keep them aloof. But this is but to try masteries with fortune and let men beware how they neglect and suffer matter of trouble to be prepared. For no man can forbid the spark 
nor tell whence it may come. The difficulties in prince's business are many and great, but the greatest difficulty is often in their own mind. For it is common with princes, saith Tacitus, to will contradictories. Sunt plerumque regum voluntatis vehementes et inter se contrariae. For it is the solecism of power to think the command the end, and yet not to endure the mean. Kings have to deal with their neighbors, their wives, their children, their prelates or clergy, their nobles, their second nobles or gentlemen, their merchants, their commons, and their men of war. And from all these arise dangers, if care and circumspection be not used. First for their neighbors. There can no general rule be given, for occasions are so variable, save one, which ever holdeth, which is, that princes do keep due sentinel, that none of their neighbors do ever grow so, by increase of territory, by embracing of trade, by approaches, or the like, as they become more able to annoy them than they were. And this is generally the work of standing councils, to foresee and to hinder it. During that triumvirate of kings, King Henry the Eighth of England, Francis the First, King of France, and Charles the Fifth Emperor, there was such a watch kept, that none of the three could win a palm of ground, but the other two would straightways balance it, either by confederation, or, if need were, by a war and would not in any wise take up peace at interest. And the like was done by that league which Gucciardini saith was the security of Italy, made between Ferdinando, king of Naples, Lorenzius Medici, and Ludovicus Sforza, potentates the one of Florence, the other of Milan. Neither is the opinion of some of the schoolmen to be received, that a war cannot justly be made, but upon a precedent injury or provocation. For there is no question but a just fear of an imminent danger, though there be no blow given, is a lawful cause of a war. For their wives, there are cruel examples of them. Livia is infamed for the poisoning of her husband. Roxelana, Soliman's wife, was the destruction of that renowned prince, Sultan Mustafa, and otherwise troubled his house and succession. Edward the Second of England, his queen, had the principal hand in the deposing and murder of her husband. This kind of danger is then to be feared chiefly when the wives have plots for the raising of their own children, or else that they be advaltresses. For their children, the tragedies likewise of dangers from them have been many. And generally, the entering of fathers into suspicion of their children hath been ever unfortunate. The destruction of Mustafa, that we named before, was so fatal to Solomon's line, as the succession of the Turks from Solomon until this day is suspected to be untrue, and of strange blood. For that Selimus the second was thought to be supposititious. The destruction of Crispus, a young prince of rare towardness, by Constantinus the Great, his father, was in like manner fatal to his house. 
for both Constantinus and Constance, his sons, died violent deaths, and Constantius, his other son, did little better, who died indeed of sickness, but after that Julianus had taken arms against him. The destruction of Demetrius, son to Philip the Second of Macedon, turned upon the father, who died of repentance. And many like examples there are, but few or none where the fathers had good by such distrust, except it were where the sons were up in open arms against them, as was Selimus I against Bajazet and the three sons of Henry the Second, King of England. For their prelates, when they are proud and great, there is also danger from them, as it was in the times of Anselmus and Thomas Becket, archbishops of Canterbury, who, with their croziers, did almost try it with the king's sword, and yet they had to deal with stout and haughty kings, William Rufus, Henry I, and Henry II. The danger is not from that state, but where it hath a dependence of foreign authority, or where the churchmen come in and are elected, not by the coalition of the king or particular patrons, but by the people. For their nobles, to keep them at a distance, it is not amiss, but to depress them may make a king more absolute, but less safe, and less able to perform anything that he desires. I have noted it in my history of King Henry the Seventh of England, who depressed his nobility, whereupon it came to pass that his times were full of difficulties and troubles. For the nobility, though they continued loyal unto him, yet did they not cooperate with him in his business, so that in effect he was fain to do all things himself. For their second nobles, there is not much danger from them being a body dispersed, they may sometimes discourse high, but that doth little hurt. Besides, they are a counterpoise to the higher nobility that they grow not too potent. And lastly, being the most immediate in authority with the common people, they do best temper popular commotions. For their merchants, they are vina porta, and if they flourish not, a kingdom may have good limbs, but will have empty veins and nourish little. Taxes and imposts upon them do seldom good to the king's revenue, for that that he wins in the hundred, he leaseth in the shire. The particular rates being increased, but the total bulk of trading rather decreased. For their commons, there is little danger from them, except it be where they have great and potent heads, or where you meddle with the point of religion, or their customs, or means of life. For their men of war, it is a dangerous state where they live and remain in a body, and are used to donatives, whereof we see examples in the Janizaries and Praetorian bands of Rome. But trainings of men, and arming them in several places, and under several commanders, and without donatives, are things of defense, and no danger. Princes are like to heavenly bodies, which cause good or evil times, and which have much veneration, but no rest. All precepts concerning kings are in effect comprehended in those two remembrances. Memento quod es homo, and memento quod es deus, or 
vice dei. The one bridleth their power, and the other their will. End of the Essays of Francis Bacon, Essays 16, 17, 18, and 19.